Thank you for listening to this message from Forward Ministries. We pray it blesses you, encourages you, and inspires grace in you today. You can visit us online at forwardministries.org. And I'm calling the series The Lies That We Believe or The Lies of Religion. And I want to talk about today do, is the idea of whether or not believers still have a sin nature or a sinful nature or a root of sin within them. Depending on which translation you read, there's only a couple of translations or, trans, or paraphrases. I know the New Living translation is not actually a translation. It's a paraphrase of the Bible, and it uses the terminology sin nature. But did you know that that's not even in the original language, the idea of humans having a sin nature? And even the early church kind of came against that idea of having a sin nature and even came against the idea of what's called original sin. So let me clarify, because I'm not a universalist. I'm not trying to say we're all saved and all that kind of stuff. But there's a couple of different thoughts. Let me paint a picture of the two main types of thoughts when we start talking about what we are on this side of the cross. You all with me so far? So where I'm going to end up is what's important. Where I start, it's open for debate and conversation. I'm not trying to build a dogma or doctrine or anything out. I'm just going to give you a couple of ideas. Then we're going to get after the cross, and that's where we're going to say, this is what the Word says. Y'all cool with that? So I'll kind of just talk out, talk, present some ideas to begin with. So in this series, I've kind of been touching on the idea of Paul and the early writers of the Bible wrote their letters to refute a couple of ideas. They would obviously present the gospel. They obviously were developing the doctrine that we have now to to understand and interact with the new covenant and something that we can teach from. But a lot of the letters were written to refute, not just to refute, but they included refuting and getting the early church back on track. They refuted legalism. In other words, the Pharisees coming back in and saying, yeah, you can have Jesus, but you still got to keep the law too. And Paul said over and over, look, there's no more sacrifice for sin. You can't go back down to the temple and bring your offering because Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice offering, sin offering for your sin. It's not a mixed covenant thing that you can keep yourself under where you're trying to obey for righteousness, but, you, but yet you believe in Jesus. It's either all Jesus or it's nothing. Amen? So... There's a couple of different thoughts of what kind of beings we are before we are born again, before we're born of the Spirit, before we exercise faith in the sacrifice of Christ and are cleansed and are made righteous by His blood. There's a couple of different um, thoughts. One is on the side, and again, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to bash anything. I just want you to know and think about this a little bit so that once you get to the post-cross part, you, you got more of a basis to collect your thoughts together. Does that make sense? So one area is the idea of kind of a hyper-Calvinistic perspective, and they have this acronym called TULIP. The T in TULIP stands for total depravity or totally depraved. And the, the idea is this. Humans, when they're born, are evil, pretty much. There is no, there is no good within you. You are utterly morally depraved, and you are on your, tr- on your way absolutely to hell. There's no option for you to even be good because you're created totally depraved. Now, 
part of that, and depends, there's different levels within this, but that leads you to the conclusion that you can't choose good on your own. In other words, you don't have a faith of your own. So therefore, if you're going to be saved, God predetermines those who are saved or not. Because if you're totally depraved, it's not within you to choose anything good. Therefore, everyone is totally depraved, and God has predetermined just a few who will be saved. You ever heard that? You ever been taught those kinds of things? I mean, you know, it, it is what it is. I mean, those, whether you believe that or not. The other side is this, and this is, you know, that's kind of one extreme. There may be another extreme. I'm just painting a picture, then we'll get to the truth. So <clears throat> the other picture is, and this is kind of from the original language you look in Genesis when it talks about that God created man out of the dust of the ground, breathed in him, gave him the breath of life, and mankind became a living soul. It doesn't say he became a spirit. It doesn't say he became a spirit that has a soul that lives in a body. It doesn't say that he is, is a soul that has a spirit that lives in a body. The kind of being that mankind is defined as being from the beginning is a living soul. All right? So if you go from that perspective, you're a soulish being. Now, in Romans, it does talk about us being born under sin. We have inherited what Adam passed down to us, which is the carnality of the flesh or sinful desire within us. But the idea of a human being born and at its core, it's a sinful creature was actually refuted by some of the people in the early church. Now, the issue is this, that eventually everyone chooses sin. But let me tell you this. Now, this might blow your mind a little bit. It'll cause you to think. But how do you become righteous? It's by faith, right? By grace through faith. No one absolutely ever attains righteousness through any act of the flesh. So, even if someone were to be born and lived sinless their entire life, I, you know, because I hear the questions that come up, and, and we're talking about an idea that's kind of hotly debated, but what I'm getting to eventually is answering the question is, do believers still have a sin nature is where we're going? But even beforehand, is humankind evil and totally depraved? Or does it make the choice to yield to sin, which needs to be removed? But think about this. A human, if it's born and it never sins, is it righteous? Is it eternal? Does it have the gift of righteousness and eternal life from Jesus? No, because that comes one way and one way only, and that is exercising faith in the sacrifice of Christ. So I'm not trying to say that we're sinless and righteous on our own if you don't sin. I mean, I might be answering questions that you're not asking because I'm talking about 10 different kinds of things here. I'm not trying to be confusing, but I'm just, some of you have these and some of you don't, so just stick with me. But the issue is not whether, it really doesn't matter if you believe that you had a sin nature or you didn't, but you just yielded to sin beforehand. What happens to you after you get born again? So a couple of weeks ago, we went through Colossians 2. And it's just the beautiful uh, explanation of what happens to you when you become born again. See, because you're taught in religion that even though you're a believer, 
you still have this lingering sin nature and it's a battle and you have a black dog and a white dog fighting within you and which one you feed is going to be the one that wins out because you have a dual nature now. You ever been taught that? I think that's wrong. And I think it's wrong because you see it in Colossians 2 where it says there is a circumcision that has happened within us that is without hands. And it removes that sinful nature. It removes that root of sin within you. It removes that old man. And it takes it out and it puts it into Jesus. Jesus becomes your sin on the cross. He doesn't just put it in a bag and carry it. The picture that we have of the old covenant when you would bring your sacrifice to the priest and he would lay his hands and perform what's called the shmikah, not shmitah, but shmikah, and transfer your sins ceremonially to the offering, that literally happens from you into Jesus at the actual sacrifice that all that Old Testament stuff pointed to. When you exercise faith in Jesus, a circumcision happens within you that is spiritual in nature, and it removes that desire of sin, whether or not you believe you had a sin nature, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is that sin that's in you is cut out of you and put into Jesus. And he, at that point, you become a new creature, a different kind of creature than what you were before. So whether or not you, you didn't have a spirit but you received the spirit of God or your spirit was dead and corrupt and it needed to be revitalized, however you say that, the point is that sinful part of you is removed and it's filled with the spirit of God. This is powerful stuff. So also, that's the spiritual side of you. The sin that was in you has been taken out of you. Jesus dealt with it. Then it also says the handwriting of ordinances that was against you, all the laws that are written that were, you were to keep for righteousness that were against you, were nailed to his cross. That means there's no legal system that can be held against you to identify with the sin within you to disqualify you from eternal life. Does that mean it's okay to sin? Does that mean the law's bad? No. It just means it changed what kind of creature you are deep down. So in this process, you get a new heart. And in this heart has God's moral code, has his law, has his ways written within it. And then it gets written in your mind. So you become a totally different type of creature in, these, in this moment. He cuts that root of sin out. He gives you his spirit, and he gives you a new heart. And it's from the heart that we believe. So whether or not you believe you had a sin nature ahead of time, before the cross, afterward, you do not. You don't have the propensity to, to lean towards sin. It's just because we've been so conditioned in this world, we still choose sin. This means you don't have an excuse for your sin. Here's what the excuse sounds like, and we brought this came up in the class the other night, but the excuse if you still think you've got a root of sin or a dual nature or partial sin for nature or whatever, however you'd say that, if you think that's still in you, then here's what, it's, here's what your excuse sounds like when you miss it, when you give in to that sin. Well, I'm just human. As if being human is an excuse to sin. Think about it. No. 
See, this is one of the areas where Paul refuted where Gnosticism had crept in. Gnosticism teaches that everything physical is evil, that there is a God, but that he can't touch this created realm because it's evil. There were these emanations that came off of him, and he's separate from this realm. See, it's a Gnostic belief to think that God is separated from this place. He may not be fully manifest in this place, but it's, it's, it's not accurate to say that he's off in some other place. And so the way that under Gnosticism, the way that you would actually connect with that distant God was through special knowledge or special revelation. Or you get under the proper anointed teacher and you kind of ride on the coattails of their anointing or that spiritual father was your connection to that separated God. You ever heard that? You ever believed that? Your covering is not some man, some woman. It is God. It is the fact that Christ has done something so radically different within you that you are directly connected to God in your heart. You have the same life force within you that God has within him. Now, that doesn't mean you're a God. doesn't mean you're going to become a God. You're not going to become the Messiah. But he has shared his eternal life with you. You're directly connected to him. Jesus gives us, these are, this is the language that Jesus gives us so that we understand the kind of relationship that we're in with God. You're a branch engrafted into the vine. You're, there's a direct connection there. See, before the cross, your sin separated you from God. After the cross, you are that vine, that branch that has been engrafted into the vine, and whatever is flowing through that vine is also flowing through that branch. Whatever is flowing through Jesus is flowing through you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you giving life to your mortal body. The same spirit. Think of it as a tree. It's rooted, and the same life goes to the branches. And so then you just bear the fruit of the life that's in the tree. Now, every time that branch sins, quote unquote, is it taken out of the vine and then put back in and then taken out and put? Well, that was kind of a sin. Because that's what's taught your sin will continue to separate you from God. Well, let's bring that into the new covenant, please. Yes, it used to, but now it doesn't. Does that mean it's okay to sin? No. I mean, sin produces death. We're talking about spiritual matters, and sin doesn't exist there. You know, too many Christians are approaching this, this conversation carnally or, or from a mixed covenant perspective rather than from the spiritual perspective. Let's get that part right. Let's get the new covenant aspect right. Then let's deal with the behavioral and the obedience things. Let's talk from the perspective of where we actually live seated in Christ. Then deal with the rest of the stuff. Amen? Y'all agree to that? Because I'm going to do it either way, so it's... <laughs> I'm going to try to. So do you have a sin nature after you're born again? Do you still have a root of sin within you that drives you and compels you towards sin and you have to fight it? No, it's cut out of you. Why do you still sin then? It's a really complex answer. 
because you want to. You choose it. It's not part of your nature. Do you, do you understand? I want, I, I want you to understand this part because you don't have the excuse of saying, well, I'm only human, to settle for anything less than the righteousness of God being born into your life in every area. Now, thankfully, nothing can separate you from the love of God, not even your sin. God is not holding your sin against you. This is the promise of the new covenant. He is not using it to judge you. He already judged Jesus on your behalf. Sin doesn't enter into that spiritual area. What it does is it stays either in your body, your mind, your soul, and you fight with it. But in the spirit, you're already perfected. Now, how do you yield to the spiritual influence and let sin stay out of you? It's, it's a mind renewal process. It's a process of believing. I mean, everybody wants that answer, right? Yeah, how do I do that? Well, that's kind of like answering how do you love your wife. I mean, it's a relationship. It's a process. It's a choice. It's an interaction. So you don't have the excuse of why you remain in sin. You don't have the excuse of saying, well, I, it's just, I'm just human. It's just what I do. Because even if you were totally depraved before the cross, you are not after the cross. You are a new creature, different than what you were before. And I think what Paul would say about sin, stop it. Just stop it because it's producing death in your life. So God, First uh, Samuel 16, 7 tells us that God looks at the heart. Interesting that God looks at your heart to determine what he thinks about you. But he gave you a new one when you got born again. I mean, he just set you up for success. Do you see that? So when you're talking about why sin is still a problem for us, you don't have the luxury of saying, well, I just have the root of sin within me. I just inherited it from my father, Adam. I'm just fighting that old battle in my mind, and it's just part of what I am. Do you ever use that excuse? It's like you limit yourself or you fail, and you say, well, I'm only human. That's not a good excuse. That, that, that is, that is a, that is a uh, I'll just say, a slap in the face of what Jesus has done within you. Now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God is not waiting to judge you for your sin. He already judged Jesus. See, that, that's, that's the part that the legalists have trouble with because it sounds like you're, you're giving people an, a license to sin. Really? I'm telling people the only way to get out of it. You don't need a license, and it's not part of your nature. Just stop choosing it. Stop yielding to its influence. And the grace that is more abundantly available than that opportunity for sin will rise up within you and empower you and teach you how to walk wholly according to what has already happened in your spirit. So just to kind of put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, of your old dead man, of whether or not you have this old nature lingering around within you that drives you towards sin, let's read Romans 6. And if you, if you don't have your Bible, we're going to put it up on the screen. But Romans 6, 6 is, is where we're going to start. And this is just, you know, it's, it's really, 
I think we read these kinds of things, but then we still judge ourselves by our outward performance or our obedience, or we judge other people by their outward performance. And I think some preachers are so afraid that people are going to end up in sin that they don't tell you the truth. It's not like a conspiracy. It's just a carnal way of thinking. I personally believe that if I get you convinced of what's true of you spiritually, you'll actually yield to the influence, and it will change those outward performances. It will change even the sin that people stand up and say, I am a whatever, that, that identify with that sin. It can change that too. It's the only power. Romans 6, 6, for we know that our old... I'm not sure which... I think this is New King James. <clears throat> I met mine, what I'm reading might be a little bit different. I think it's New American Standard, but... For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. See, we don't, we don't understand that we died with him, that we were crucified with him. That's not the, the way that we choose to evaluate ourselves. We look at our behaviors and what we feel about our behaviors to determine what we are, not what he's done in us. So verse 11, in the same... I'm going to skip around a little bit. We're going to Romans 6, 11. All right, so in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. What's evil desires? Your evil desires or sin's evil desires? Paul talks about sin as this thing that comes into you. It's something that you yield to. It's not part of your nature. It's something that you let reign in you or not. It's like an influence that comes in you. And even the first reference of sin all the way back in Genesis, it's a noun. It's a sin. It's, it's a thing. Sin is something that entered the world that you either let reside within you or not. It's not what defines your nature. Does that make sense to you? I mean, the language is pretty clear that you obey. See, that, that one's a little bit different, but that you obey its evil desires. Verse 13 do not offer any part of yourself to sin. See, if you are sin at your nature, why is he making the distinction of yielding to it or not? You wouldn't have a choice to yield to it or not if it's part of your nature. Do you see that? So don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. I mean, that, this describes worship for me. When I'm in worship, I am obviously giving him adoration. I'm acknowledging him. I am worshiping him. He is my God. I am communing with him. But part of that is I'm yielding myself to the influence of righteousness. I'm opening my heart that as I behold him, I am becoming like him. The transformative process is happening. His love is extending to me. His grace is alive within me. And because I'm connected with him, I'm yielding to that righteousness that, that will bear fruit. You could yield to sin that bears the fruit of divorce. 
that leads you to the death of whatever it is, the havoc that's reaped in your life. Maybe it's a substance abuse issue that you just continually go back to. You will reap the death that yielding to that influence will produce in your life. But if you are a believer, if you have been born again, it is actually easier for you to yield to righteousness to bear fruit. Righteousness, peace, love, joy, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, meekness. All of the attributes of the fruits of the Spirit, that is what gets birthed out of you as you yield to that influence. See, righteousness is not a bar that you live up to by your performance. It is a gift. It's a state of existence that's given to you, that Jesus has a righteousness. And because you approach God and come through him, you are given Jesus' righteousness. Is it your righteousness? Absolutely not. Could you ever get to the level of righteousness that you will be at after, after you pass into heaven? No, it's a gift. And because you have it now, you can yield to it and live so and live accordingly. I mean, I was at a conference and, you know, teaching this stuff one time, and somebody said, well, so are you saying that we can actually live sinless? Well, yeah, because that's how powerful righteousness is within you. Now, you're probably going to choose sin. Thankfully, Jesus already dealt with it. He's not holding it against you. But you got a death to reap in this life if you continue to yield to it. But just as you can yield to sin and its influence, you yield to God, and, it, and He will empower you. That, that drive that you think that you can't avoid that sin, you just find yourself in it over and over and over, whether it be an emotional issue that produces anger or a physical issue that produces an actual action, it's actually easier to yield to the influence of God and produce righteousness or peace than death and destruction. But what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your soul? What's going on in your mind? Who do you think that you are? Which influence are you yielding to? That's, what, that's the fruit that you're going to eat. You guys, you guys ever daydream? You might be daydreaming right now. It's like, well, I don't know where we're... <clears throat> I want to give you a little illustration of what happens. This is one indication of learning what's in your heart. Now, you don't need to go through the process of trying to figure out what's wrong with me. Do I, I need to get my heart working the right way? Your heart's going to do what it's going to do. God gave you a new one. It's perfect. It knows what to do. It knows how to hear him but it's also under the influence of the soul and the heart. What you believe in your heart is going to come to pass in your life. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Out of the heart flow all the issues of life. Jesus goes through the mystery of the kingdom parable in Mark 4, and he says, basically, the condition of your heart determines the degree of the kingdom you will let yourself experience. So what this does is it puts us, it kind of freaks us out and thinks, oh my gosh, i got to fix my heart. No, you don't have to fix your heart. Your, your heart has eyes, and you turn your gaze either toward the Lord or toward the world. And which one you're looking at specifically when you start thinking about yourself and evaluating yourself, whichever one you're looking at is going to be the one you yield to the influence of. So the daydreaming thing, right? 
And I, and I caught myself doing this this week, and, it, and I think God said, preach that. I said, okay, so I'm preaching it. But the thing is, you daydream, right? So when you daydream, you go through an evaluation process. Sometimes your daydreams look like this. You think about the past, or you think about where you are right now, and because your heart wants to process maybe some issues that you haven't dealt with, you look at where you are right now, and maybe you judge yourself as not as far along as you should be. Or maybe you're in your fifth marriage and you're judging yourself. Or maybe you're not giving enough. Or maybe you're not going to church enough. Or maybe you didn't follow through on that call that God put in your life. Whatever it is that you use to beat yourself up with, those areas you start thinking about. You start evaluating. You start looking at yourself and wondering what in the world's going on. And then you go. And then all of a sudden you're daydreaming and you think about your father. Or you think about what happened to you when you were 12. Or you think about the pain. Are you following me? Does this make sense to you? Because this is what we do. Yeah. We, our mind starts to drift. And when, where it goes, watch where your daydreams go when you start trying to evaluate yourself because it will land on unresolved areas in your past that you need to deal with. You either need to get some counseling or you just meditate on the Word of God till you replace and you actually have within yourself the truth rather than that, that thing in the past still defining you and echoing from the past telling you who you are. You need to tell it who you are, and it will lose its grasp on you, and your daydreams become different. Your daydreams become positive. When you daydream, where does it end? Does it end in fear for you? Does it end in worry? Does it end in you thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be broke the whole, my whole life? Or, you know, where do your daydreams end? Because that's the subtle influence that you've allowed into your heart that's going to tell you who you are and, and what it's telling you, you're going to continue to make those same kinds of decisions over and over. But you can just as easily turn that in, catch it, interrupt the pattern, catch it, and turn the influence, turn the focus, rather than to the past, to what Jesus did for you. This is an art of influencing our hearts and writing on the tablets of our hearts and actually connecting to the moments of inspiration that the, the church has lost. We've lost the meditative process of the influence of God actually changing us at a heart level that produces effortless transformation. Are you following me? See, Christianity for some of us has been, this is the list of rules. This is what you got to do to be spiritual. Prophesy, get miracles, give a certain amount of money. And do that stuff. I'm not, I'm not against that stuff. But it's about the heart. It's about what's going on inside. What do you believe? And I'm telling you a way to find out what you believe. I'm telling you a way to catch yourself and shift the focus back on Jesus so that when you're yielding to that influence, it's not your 12-year-old self that's defining to who you are in this moment. It's Jesus. And it's not a half-nature old sin nature lingering around, and you're just predisposed to sin. No, that's cut out too. That's gone too. Romans 6, 11, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its sinful desires, evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, 
but rather offer yourselves to God. This is, this is the process I just described. As those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Do that. I mean, actually do that. Whatever that looks like for you, actually yield yourself to his influence of righteousness within you. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Praise God. And then skip ahead to verse 17, Romans 6, 17. <clears throat> but thanks be to God. Though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of the teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. You feel like you're a slave to that sin. You feel like you're a slave to that thing. Like This is what most people do. Believe Most people have this little sin that they still mess around with where it's emotional or actually physical, and we settle. And you get to a point when you say, I can handle this level of guilt. You know what I'm talking about. I'm okay with this level of guilt. I'm okay with this level of watering down the power of God in my life. I'm okay with this amount of death. I can deal with this much death. And so we settle for the sin. Rather than taking God at his word and, and, and yielding to him to the degree that it has no power over you any longer, even the sins that you that are acceptable to you. So what is sin? What is the process of sin? James 1.13. Let's flip over there. James 1.13 and 14, and then we'll, we'll end on this. Now, this might be the most encouraging message about sin you've ever heard in your life. I hope so, because I don't want to preach on sin and you feel condemned, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I, what I want is that you are inspired to not live limited to carnality, not live in this limited way of, of just settling for the stuff that we've dealt with, that we've allowed to reign in our minds and in our souls. God deserves better than that because he paid for you in full and he gave everything that he has for you and put everything that he has in you and if you would just yield to that, it would bear fruit. So James 1.13, let no man... Now, this is a whole message in and of itself. I'm going to give you one of my favorite messages to preach in about one minute on James 1.13. Ready? James 1.13, let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. So leave it on 13 there, please, sir. And the word tempted earlier in James is, is translated as trial, in other places, it's translated as test. So in other words, God is not testing you. God is not creating external trials for you to see if you pass them to earn a blessing from him. Now, when, it talks, when Paul talks about in 1 Peter, he's talking about Abraham and how Abraham tested God and how and God tests our hearts. It's a different word than this word here. And it's the word that talks about an internal testing. And, in, and I think it's in, in 
1 Samuel, it talks about that he tests our minds. He's not testing your obedience. He's not testing your performance. He's testing your mind. And we know that, Je- that Jesus in, in John uh, 16, 15, says that he does it with the word. That the way God purifies you, that the way God strengthens you is with his word. And it's inwardly. So this process of God's allowing cancer to stay in your life, which is an external thing from this world, that you need to learn a lesson from that, that it's from God and and that he's going to somehow use it, that is a lie of religion. To say that you've lost your job, that God put you in a position where you've lost your job or someone is doing something to you and this is just a test from God, God's just testing me. Baloney. It says right here, let no man say when I'm tested, tempted, that it's from God because God doesn't tempt you. Now, you just, you just, if you want to go through, now, see, we don't believe that. Even though the Bible says it, and that's where you got to study your Bible. This is where you actually have to read your Bible, find some good study tools, and figure out and, and see where it's the same word as where you use scriptures to say that he is testing us. I'm getting kind of forceful here, right? I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just... <clears throat> the testing that God does is to make you stronger, but he uses his word. It's the conviction of righteousness that he does. You're better than that. I've done something about that. I've cut that root of sin out of you. I'm not holding sin against you. You're better than this. You're my child. You are my righteousness. You're the expression that I am righteous because I've given you my righteousness. Now, come on, live like it. Not, uh uh-oh, you missed it. Let me take your bonus away so you'll learn something. I mean, really? God's not using carnal methods to bring you to a place of spiritual righteousness. So James 1.14, every man and woman, you're not out on that one, just so you know, is tempted, or is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust or desire and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. The death is of our own choosing. Or stuff happens externally that's not necessarily a result of your sin, and difficulties just happen because the world is in the state that it's in. But there is no area where you're missing God that it's the devil's fault or God's fault, and we're not even really talking about fault. We're just talking about what can we do to yield to righteousness, to not let sin be an influence in our lives, to not still live the way we used to live before we let Jesus take up residence within us and give ourselves over to that and have these excuses of why we stay limited. You know, we've made sin and obedience about you're doing the right thing or you're doing the wrong thing. And the church has got the finger pointed at the world saying, that's wrong, that's right, that's sin, that's sin. And the issue is we need to be talking to to people's hearts. It's the goodness of God that draws people to repentance. And the goodness of God says there is a way out of sin by becoming a different kind of creature. Let me bring you into that kind of relationship by giving you Jesus, and then we can talk about your behavior. 
I mean, what is the church thinking, pointing out all these behaviors, thinking that that's actually going to produce some type of transformation? Because the strength of sin is the law. It's like, it's like and, and I, think about it. The strength of sin is the law. Why in the world are we expecting the world to change when we're using the law to beat people up with? All we're doing is reinforcing the strength of the sin in their life. And the only way out of sin is to give them grace, to give them the gospel, to give them a way out to bring them into this loving relationship with God who transforms them and sets them on a different track and then bring them into a place like this and encourage and teach. That's all I'm doing. You don't need me, but you do need to be encouraged. We need to be reminded of this stuff, right? I mean, that's what church should be is a community where we actually love each other. And, you know, we were talking about in, 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 in class on Wednesday, we're doing an identity class, and it was brought up that there's a tribe somewhere that when one of their tribal community members does an injustice against somebody else, they what is it called? Reminding you who you are? Yeah, they, like, it's like a reminding of who you really are. So they bring the person in that did the, that did the injustice or the whatever, broke the law, put them in the town center, and they walk by, and they remind them who they are. You're kind, you're loving, you're good. When you were five, you did this for me, and you helped. And, and they remind, they speak to the who, they, they, they encourage them, raise them up. That's what, the, that's what the Spirit of God does for you. He's not looking to beat you up for your sin. He's actually already removed it from you. He's wanting to encourage you to embrace His grace, to rise above all this limiting junk that we have in our lives. And this is, I want to leave you with a funny picture. It's a word picture. You'll remember this. But if you are engrafted into the vine, if you're a new creature, if you have been placed in the covenant that is between the Father and the Son, and the Son, the strength of His character is what upholds the new covenant, the promise from God to the Son, and you're included in that because you've said yes to Jesus, you're a joint heir, if you have become one with him, like Jesus prayed in John 17, that I pray that they be one with one another as we are one, and I am one with them, and you are one with them, and I am in them, and you're in them, and you're in me. I mean, he paints this picture where it's like, you're so entwined and one. You're one with God. It's like the mystery of a marriage. And, and, and it's like you have been planted into God. So that's the picture, that you're like a tree in Him. You're in Christ. And whatever the life that's in God, and it says it, 1 John, that as He is, so are we in this world. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in us, giving life to our physical body. That's the picture, is that you are in God and, and, and his life is growing into you and feeding you just like any branch of any tree would. And so you just yield to that power that's going through you to bear the fruit of the Spirit. But this is what sin looks like. Imagine a flower or a tomato plant that's planted in a garden, right? And it just rained, and it's like the soil is just perfect. And all of a sudden, this tomato plant starts growing a tendril out over toward the cat bowl, and it wants to drink out of the cat bowl. 
I mean, imagine if a flower sometime, somehow was leaning and stretching and trying to drink out of the cat bowl in your kitchen, you know. That's what sin is. You have the life force of God flowing through you. And what sin is, instead of yielding to him in every area and God giving you a godly way to express that desire, you reach into the world and try to have something else. That's all sin is. And that will then produce death. It's like, it's like you stick your hand into death and then, and then you start experiencing it. Praise God, it doesn't come to the degree where it then corrupts your spirit. It's not going to separate you from God. It's not going to uproot you from out of God. It's just going to constrict what God wants to do in your heart and your life and for people around you. That's the reason to stay out of sin is because what sin does is it hardens your heart and it limits that life from flowing out of you. I mean, any, any, and, and if, you, if you want to know if you're in sin or not, I'll just tell you, you are. <laughs> because anything not of faith is sin. Let's just get that standard on the board, you know. We're not talking about whether or not what you're doing is sin or not. You know, preachers love money illustrations, so I'll just give this one. If God inspires you to write something and you don't do it, it's not a cursing for that. It's just that you're not, you're not letting God inspire that, 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 uh, that generosity through you that we can do something with or that any church, whatever, you know. It doesn't even have to be a church thing. That's just a concrete example. We have no more excuse for sin. It's not part of who you are. It's something that you choose and allow to reign within you. And the world needs to see what people look like who are actually influenced by love and carry that message. Because they're dying. They're, they're starving for God. People know God exists. Nobody's got an excuse to say God's not real. God's been revealed to everybody. So God's already set their mind. You just go to them and love them. Take them this gospel message and tell them, this is what Jesus has done for you. And usually the automatic response is, I'm willing to. I remember I worked at Domino's in Bible college. And preachers, you got preachers working with you? No. It's, I don't know. Preachers deliver pizza at night. I don't know. It's just a thing. There was, that place was full of preachers. And there's this one guy that wanted a believer. And man, preacher after preacher, I'd listen to these guys try and minister to him and witness to him, and he just, you know, he wasn't having it. And I just pulled him aside one day and said, let me, let, me, let me ask you something. What if there were a God that loved you and he created a way that instead of you performing your way up to him, you could just take the gift that he has for you and then you could just live with him? Would you believe in that kind of God? He's like, yeah, that sounds probably, that sounds more accurate to me. So then I was able to give him the gospel and then leave him with a choice. You know, it's, it's like the world is starving for love. You've got the answer. It's in you. But maybe you're yielding so much to fear and guilt and even the behaviors of sin that you're limiting what God can do through you. Just make a choice right now that you're not going to let the influence of sin control you. That's the question we all have. Why do I keep doing that? Because you're not yielding to God. You know, if you, could, if, you could, if, you could, if you could just get people to make these decisions, the body of Christ would look very different on this planet. We would actually be going into the world and bringing people to the saving knowledge of Jesus rather than 
being so strapped and limited because of ourselves. You've been set free. Live in it. Don't you want to live in it? Don't you, aren't you tired of guilt? Aren't you tired of the shame? You know, you don't have to carry that stuff. You just, it's, you just don't yield to it anymore. God help. That's, that's, the, that's the way. You know, you gotta, you, you, it starts with a choice. You, gotta, you have to want to let him influence you, and then you just do it. This is where then the religious world will creep in and give you a book and say, here, these are my seven steps, so how do you actually experience it? Nobody can teach you that. It's you getting in with the Holy Spirit and, and letting him teach you. We set the table, and it's up to you if you're going to eat or not. I hope that you do. I hope that we all learn to yield to that righteousness. Father, thank you so much for setting us free in Jesus. <clears throat> thank you for the power that resides within us. We want to stay firmly rooted in you to have your life essence, your spirit flowing through every part of us, not just in our spirits. We want to let you out into our lives. We want to live righteously. We want to live that holiness that you've, been, that you've given us. We want to be a reflection to the world of who you are because of us experiencing your transformation. God, in this moment, I yield to your righteousness.